And that's one thing that's really cool with this CubeSat, um, you know, mentality is that I think it's complementary in a way to what we're already doing. Um, and I think we're going to see great things coming out of that. Super sensitive seismometers, self-burrowing heat probes, and companion interplanetary CubeSats. NASA's InSight spacecraft has a lot to be excited about. But how is it all integrated together? How will we know it's safe ahead of its upcoming launch? We'll talk systems engineering, spacecraft instruments, and communication relays. All this and more on today's episode of the We Martians podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the We Martians podcast. I'm your host, Jake Robbins. I hope 2018 is treating you well so far. For me, it's been really busy and really great. And if you know me at all, busy is the only way I'd have it. The big news since we spoke last is, of course, the successful static fire of the Falcon Heavy rocket at Cape Canaveral one week ago. Falcon Heavy will become the most powerful rocket flying today if it successfully takes off on February 6th as planned. I've been tracking this rocket for a long time. I believe it's really important for Mars as it will begin to lower the cost of access for heavy lift rockets. It could enable us to fly bigger and bigger payloads to Mars and the Moon, which will ultimately promote the development of new technologies and missions. It's in fact so important that I've decided that I could not be left alone without seeing this rocket for the first time. I'll be traveling down to Florida next week to see it. I'm really excited not only for myself, since it will be my first launch ever, but also because this will give me a chance to share with all of you the cool stuff that I see. The next episode will be a feature on the rocket with all the information I gather in Florida. I need your help, however. This is an unbudgeted trip for me, and while I'm making a lot of concessions to try and keep the cost down, it will not be free. You can support me in a number of ways that are really, really convenient and provide great value for you. The best way, of course, is through Patreon. So not only is Patreon easy to pay a small amount every month, literally as little as $1 a month, it also comes with a ton of perks. I've talked about this at length before, so I won't go into a ton of details, but if you're really interested, I encourage you please to check out patreon.com slash wemartians and see all the rewards and benefits that come with membership. This is a great time to pledge too, as we are very, very near our next goal of $300 per month. So if you're a patron already, thank you, and maybe consider upgrading your pledge as well because we've improved our offerings and I think there's something very special there that you'll like. But if Patreon isn't your thing, you can also pick up a Sweet Mars t-shirt in our new store. Over at shop.wemartians.com, we've got four custom designs and two logo designs, including a Falcon Heavy shirt that would be perfect for the main event. So if you're in the United States, there's still a chance you can get it before the flight if you order today. This is another great way to support us, and you get swag too. If you're supporting already, thank you. Trips like this would not be possible without your help, and I could not be more grateful. Okay, that's enough begging for money. Let's get on with today's interview because it's a really, really great one. 
Falcon Heavy is a pretty big launch this year, but it's not the only one. 2018 is a Mars launch window year, and NASA's taking full advantage of it with the InSight mission. This little Mars lander is a Discovery-class mission that is launching on May 5th from California. We'll obviously be focusing a lot of coverage on the spacecraft this year, especially since it's also landing in November, so it's time to get started. First, I wanted to understand the spacecraft itself and how it's put together. When I went looking for an engineer to tell us about this, there was really one obvious choice. Farah Alibay is a payload systems engineer at the NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Not only is she knowledgeable on the spacecraft and its companion CubeSats, but she's also a fellow Canadian, so I asked her to join us and share her insight. Did you see what I did there? Okay, so we're here with Farah Alibay from JPL. How are you doing today, Farah? Great, how are you? I'm excellent. I'm so excited to talk to you. I have been trying to get an insight uh, episode done for, for such a long time, and uh, the schedule never worked out, but it's 2018 now, and the spacecraft is going to launch pretty soon, so it's really yeah. high time that I got kind of into this topic. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, no uh, problem. And you're under the weather too, so I really appreciate you uh, <laughs> uh, taking the extra steps to show up today uh, a, little, a little sick. So um, well, before we get started into the topics, why don't you start with a little bit about yourself? I love to hear about everyone's background, your education. Um, you know, how did you get into space and, and how did you get to JPL? Uh, yeah, it's a long, long question. So I'm actually, so I'm French Canadian, so I don't say a boot. Um, I was born in Montreal and um, I grew up in Canada and I actually moved to England when I was a teenager um, because my dad was an engineer and so we moved around a lot. Um, and when I was in England, I went, I did my um, high school there and then went to university at the University of Cambridge. Um, and I did aerospace engineering, but um, in Europe, when you do aerospace engineering, especially in England at the time, it was more on the aero side. So I was doing jet engines and working for Rolls-Royce, looking at, at different types of jet engines. And so I did my undergrad and master's there, but I was always really passionate about space. And the real story about why I like space is actually because of Apollo 13. <laughs> um, <laughs> I watched that movie. I think a lot of engineers say that, but I watched that movie when I was nine or something. And when growing up, I... I actually really liked dinosaurs when I was growing up because I grew up in the times of Jurassic Park and really wanted to be a paleontologist until I discovered how boring it was because you're just in the desert all the time. <laughs> um, but my brother really, really liked space. And um, so he had all these space things. And then we watched Apollo 13. And at the end of that movie, he was freaking out, did not want to go into space, did no longer want to be an astronaut. He was just like, this is too dangerous. And I turned around and I was like, oh, no, this is really cool. Um, and what really appealed to me, looking back, right, was all the engineers working together, trying to find a solution at the last minute to save these astronauts. And obviously, I also wanted to become an astronaut. I think a lot of aerospace engineers will tell you the same thing. <laughs> so, you know, nine or 10-year-old Farah thought, wow, aerospace is really cool. But I think she didn't really know it could be a job. I just thought it was a movie and really only Americans could be astronaut in my mind. And, you know, I was this little Canadian European kid. But once I got to college, it kind of clicked for me that like, hey, I could be an aerospace engineer and there's people that build those spacecraft. Um, so during my undergraduate, I did a, an in, I did a year abroad at MIT um, in Boston. And that's really when I got to take, you know, the basic aerospace classes, the basic rocket science classes. And I was just fascinated and thought, I have to come back. Uh, so I worked really, really hard to finish my master's and, and applied to MIT and got in and um, did a PhD in um, space systems engineering. And that was really was my 
my my ultimate goal when I went to do my PhD, I remember sitting in my graduate advisor's office on my first day and I was like, I want to be here for three years. I have no desire to become a professor. I I just want to do research. I want to learn about space and I want to go work at NASA. That's my goal. Um, and my graduate advisor was, I was lucky enough that my graduate advisor was Jeff Hoffman, who was a shuttle astronaut. Um, he's the astronaut that repaired Hubble the first time around. Okay. Um, so he was the first astronaut to log um, five flights. Uh, you know, very humble man, but very accomplished. Um, and I think he just understood that what my passion was and pushed me to do that. Um, so once I finished my studies, that's how I ended up at GPL. Yeah, those those Hubble repairs were were not a small task. Those EVAs were very very hefty. Oh, it's incredible. So I don't know if you've seen the the Hubble IMAX movie. Um, but when we, when it first came out, uh, we went to see it with my advisor and he was like, oh yeah, that's me at the end of the arm. And it's like, oh great. That's not intimidating at all. <laughs> um, but, I, uh, yeah. I, I draw a lot of, um, uh, parallels with your, your dinosaur story. Cause I was a dinosaur kid too. And, and for years I wanted to be a paleontologist and almost <laughs> the exact same realization. I, I grew up in Alberta and there's lots of great, great places to do dinosaur stuff there. And I went to a summer camp and they're like, we're going to do paleontology today. And I was so excited. And they take you out to the side of this barren hill and it's, you know, it's 35 degrees outside, which I know. is very hot in American. And, uh, you know, they're like, you're, this is your job now. You're going to brush off the rock with a toothbrush for eight hours. And I was like, never, I'm not doing no, that. <laughs> no, I still have dinosaur books on my shelf next to my space books. Yeah. I like reading about them. You know, there's been a lot of, a lot of discoveries in the past 20 25 years right but yeah. um but i'm i'm glad I, I chose you know apollo 13 over jurassic park <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's talk about the space stuff then so you are a payload systems engineer um i, I am not very good at engineering disciplines understanding the differences between them so maybe you could help me out and i'm sure some of the listeners as well what is a payload systems engineer and why do we need it Okay, well, so let's take a step back. So first off, what is a systems engineer? Um, and a systems engineer is basically, I call it a jack of all trades, but master of none. Um, so if you're thinking of a system, and uh, let's take a spacecraft as an easier system to think about, then uh, within the spacecraft, there's subsystems, right? So you'll have a power system, an electrical system, you'll have a computer, you'll have some payload, and they're all competing for resources. They're competing for mass, space, you know, um, the amount of data they can get, the amount of operations time they can get. Um, there's always a fight for resources. The, the power engineer wants to provide you as little power as he can. The thermal engineer wants all the heaters to keep the spacecraft really warm. The payload engineer wants all the data, et cetera, right? And so the systems engineer has to understand enough of each of the components to know uh, when someone's bullshitting them, basically. Uh, but... They have to, and they have to also know what to ask for, so that they can do trades, right? So they can they can help uh, the subsystems collaborate with each other and 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 fit within a data volume mass budget, right? So so it's it's you know a little bit about everything, but you're not the expert. But you have to learn to understand the expert and ask the right questions to manage budgets and and get everything to get done on time, budget, um, schedule, right? And and mass and um, so in terms of a payload systems engineer, that's sort of one level down from a flight system engineer would deal with the whole system that, you know, for a lander or a spacecraft, a payload systems engineer will manage the interface really between the payload and the flight system. So it's the person that, 
Um, so typically the payload will be provided by instrument teams and instrument engineers, and those people are very specialized, right? So um, if, if you're talking about a mass spectrometer, you'll be talking to someone who's worked on mass spectrometers their whole life. Um, they usually have more of a science background, very technical. Um, and so the payload systems engineer is not an expert in mass spectrometry, uh, but they'll understand enough of what they're doing and understand what the interface with the system looks like, right? So, so they'll provide, they'll help define requirements for the payload and then define the interface and then the system level tests that happen. So they'll be in charge of all the payload related system level tests once the spacecraft is assembled. Okay. So, so there's kind of like, like you say, there's all the, the, the subsystems in the spacecraft. And then if you work in the payload subsystem, you're kind of the interface between all the payload individually to that subsystem. Yeah. In, in my case, yes. So in my case on, on, on Insight right now is, um, which is the project I'm currently working on, I'm actually interfacing with all the instruments. And so, so my job is to make sure I'm part of a team, but we make sure that all the instruments are being accommodated. Sometimes as part of a, usually on a bigger project, it's a payload systems engineering team. Uh, so in our case, it's three of us. And there's actually one person that's focusing on a particular instrument um, just because she that's the amount of time that she has. So she's working on that. So, so different teams have different ways of organizing this. Um, but really, essentially, what the payload systems person does is they interface, that the interface between the project and the instrument team. Okay. So you probably get to work with a lot of different people then in your job. You probably get to have kind of different sorts of meetings with, with different teams oh, yeah. <laughs> and interface across a lot of different departments and, and rooms and stuff, right? Yeah, it's fun, actually. Like today, uh, oh my God, this morning, I had a two-hour meeting about seismometry um, because one of the <laughs> instruments on that mission is a seismometer. And, and right now, because we're at the end of the mission, we're trying to close out our requirements, make sure that we're meeting our mission requirements. And so we have all these performance requirements and um, I have all this data from the instrument team, but I don't know, looking at the project level requirements, which are science requirements, I didn't really understand. I mean, I have, I took some geology classes in college, but very limited. I mean, I think seismology was half of a lecture. Um, um, and so I sat in the room with the, the, the PI, the instrument lead, the, uh, the instrument PI, which is a principal investigator, and we just talked, they just talked about requirements and I mostly sat there and tried to understand. <laughs> um, but, you know, it can vary from that to looking at uh, power budgets to looking at, uh, I was looking at keep, well, the keep mechanism capability on, on one of our instruments because we were trying to understand how it performs under different, uh, under different slopes. Uh, and then later in the afternoon, I was looking at thermal data um, to understand what the performance is, the performance would be in off-nominal situations. So, so it's really a variety. It's all related to the same instrument, but it's a variety of of components. Right? So, so what's the challenge of that job? Like, what's the hardest part about being a payload systems engineer? Uh, oh, well, you can. I think sometimes it's understanding risk and understanding compromises, right? Um, so. Right now, it's a little different because right now we're, okay, so right now, because we're in the end phases of, of my mission, um, you know, the design decisions have been made. Uh, so right now, really, it's it's completing all the tests. So it's really the challenging thing is we're running out of time. So we had to finish all the tests, make sure that we had the right tests to meet, to test our requirements, right? Uh, so designing the tests, performing the tests, 
debugging when there's an issue, uh, right? So going around to the different teams, trying to understand what the issues are, why, you know, sometimes we saw errors during the test and why they happen, what we need to do to fix them. Um, some of the tests that you do during ATLO, which is uh, assembly test and launch operations. So we did the assembly and test part. And some of the tests we do are 24 hours uh, over a week or two. Uh, so you're working night shifts. Uh, so it's a stressful time because you have a lot to get done. Um, but it's not, uh, I, I would say it's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly one thing that's hard other than bur like putting out fires. Um, but at other times I've worked as a systems engineer earlier on in the process. So, so in maybe in, in development, uh, when we don't have a full concept. And so then the issue is, you know, you, you run into roadblocks where you can't make everyone happy and it's figuring out those trades, figuring out the compromises and understanding enough about everything that's going on so that you make a decision that is ultimately going to work and make everyone happy. Um, so, okay. yeah. Um, so one of the cool things about lock or about, uh, insight is that Lockheed Martin is building the spacecraft, but, yeah. but JPL kind of manages the mission. So how does, how does that relationship work? Like do you get to work a lot with the Lockheed engineers and kind of making this all work. Oh yeah, I've spent a lot of time in Denver. Um, yeah, yeah. It's actually really fun. So, so Insight is is very special, in fact, because um, so the uh, so the mission is a JPL managed mission. So we won a discovery call. So it was a competed mission. Mm -hmm. um, and so by that I mean um, there's two ways that NASA does missions. They can either be directed, so they write it into law, and they say you will build a mission to Europa, right? So that's what's going on with the Europa Clipper mission. Uh, or they put out either a discovery or new frontiers cost. A discovery cost is usually around between three and five hundred million and dollars, American dollars, and then a new frontiers cost is usually around one billion dollars. Um, and there's a number of people that compete, so you write a proposal. So I've worked at that end too of, of writing proposals, proposing concepts, and then you get selected, right? So. So Insight was a JPL proposal, so JPL managed, so our project manager is here, the, the payload systems engineer is here. The bus, the lander, is being built at Lockheed because we're leveraging heritage from a mission that happened in the past called Phoenix. And Phoenix was a similar setup where Lockheed had built a lander. So they have the expertise and the capability, um, so it's actually cheaper and more efficient to have them build it. And then the instruments are actually being built by foreign partners, so um, so we have one instruments coming from France, one is coming from Germany, one is Spanish, and then and and one is actually heritage from the Mars Science Laboratory. So um, it's a kind of a mix, but but yeah. So the lander is being built at Lockheed. It never came to JPL. So when I was doing the systems testing, I got to go out to Lockheed, see the facilities, and work with the Lockheed engineers, and and it's fun. And that's one of the great things with with aerospace, you know, and then on the NASA side is. There's no competition once you're working together, right? There's no barriers. You're all working towards a common goal, whether you're Lockheed or GPL or whatever it is when you're working in the team. And so it's really great to see how other companies work and to get to make new friends. And, and uh, I mean, Denver is not a bad place to go either. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so it's been a fun experience just to see how they do things differently. And, and Lockheed is really good at what they do. They are just amazing. Uh, I was amazed by their facilities, their efficiency, um, they're very welcoming to everyone, and, and we work together really well, I've made great friends, so so for me it's been a really positive experience. 
Yeah, I was able to have uh, two two engineers from Lockheed talk about Mars Base Camp, and it was the same experience. They were so welcoming and and uh, eager to talk and, and share and and you know kind of educate on on what they were doing. So yeah, so I think a lot of us also work long hours, so you really have to be passionate about what you do. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's always really invigorating to meet new people who also like doing what you do because it just gives you more energy, right? So we've touched on the spacecraft a little bit, but maybe we should actually take a step back and, and talk about what Insight is about, because uh, some people may not have heard about it. So what's like, you know, what's just a, a few lines about the objectives of this mission? Like, wh why are we sending it there and what's it going to do? Okay, so so Insight is a Mars lander, so it's it got legs, it's not moving, it's not a rover. Um, so we're launching in Cinco de Mayo, so on the 5th <laughs> of May, out of Vandenberg, it's actually the the first interplanetary launch launching out of Vandenberg, um, which is on the west coast of the United States. Normally, we launch out of Kennedy. Um, there's orbital reasons why you normally launch out of Kennedy, but we had enough fuel um, to launch out of Vandenberg. So we'll, we'll land on the surface of Mars uh, the, morning, the Monday after American Thanksgiving. So I think it's November 26th of um, 2018. So it's really soon. It's this year. Uh, one of the great things with Mars is it's pretty close, um, so we get that fast. Um, and then we carry sort of, I say three and a half instruments, but it's three instruments and a, uh, and then we also do some radio science. Um, our main instrument is a seismometer uh, because the goal of Insight is to, they say, the cash line is to reveal the interior of Mars. Uh, but really, what we want to understand is what the interior of Mars looks like, right? Um, we know it doesn't have tectonic plates. We know it has a core, it probably has a mantle. We don't quite know what the interaction is. We don't know the size of the core. Um, and we know it's different from Earth and we don't know why. Um, so understanding Mars really is, is really important to us even in terms of understanding Earth or understanding other planets because understanding what its interior is like and how it was formed can help us understand maybe why Earth is different. And then when we're looking at exoplanets, which are planets around other suns, we can understand, begin to understand possibly uh, how they could be similar or different from Earth. Um, so in order to understand the interior, uh, our main instrument is a seismometer. So it's looking at seismic waves, uh, both uh, all the three types of waves, but PNS wave is primary and secondary waves and then surface waves. And so if there's any sort of activity, again, there won't be any tectonic activity, but we do expect activity uh, coming from the interior of Mars. Um, then the seismometer is, is really, really sensitive and it should be able to detect that, right? So I call them Mars quakes since they're not earthquakes. Um, so, and, and so the seismometer is in a, a vacuum sealed sphere. Um, and when we, one of the really hard parts as an engineer is once we land on the surface, we actually, the seismometer is on the lander deck and we have to use an arm to take this really sensitive instrument and then like very carefully place it on the surface of Mars. Um, <laughs> so to me, that's terrifying. That's um, like we've a tested it, right there. Yes. We've tested it hundreds of times in the lab, but it's still terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and then on top of that, we put a little thermal shield on top of it. Um, so that, that will give us, you know, any activity that we have. And then there's a heat probe, um, which um, is the heat and physical properties probe. So HP cubed for short. Um, and that consists of a, it's essentially, it's really neat engineering. It's a little self-hammering nail. So it's a nail that's got a little spring inside it that, that knocks on itself 
and pushes the nail down the surface of Mars, and it's going to go down up to five meters down the surface of Mars, and it drags a tether behind it. Um, and it's looking at the thermal signature as you go down the surface. Um, and the, so that can give you an idea of how the surface is cooling or how the heat is propagating. Uh, one of the interesting things that we know about Mars is we think that it used to have a magnetic field. Uh, we know it doesn't have one anymore. And we know the magnetic field on Earth has to do with the movement of the mantle, right? So, so it'd be interesting to understand, like, did, did it have a core? That, did it have a mantle that cooled what's going on there, right? And so, so HPQ will help us with that. And that, then um, That instrument... It, so this is a good question from one of our, our listeners, Chris, who, who was looking at this instrument. We were talking about it um, beforehand. And, and he's just like, he asked about how, how the, the temperature readings would work because once you burrow down, does it leave like a little tunnel or is that going to kind of cave in after it? It actually caves in after it, but it has a tether. So it has a really long tether that it drags down. Um, but the strange thing is, and I think this is really strange, is, is so it, the, as it's nailing itself down, the, the ground would sort of like fall on top of it right in the mm -hmm. software it's sort of like if you ever try digging a hole and there the sides are always falling yeah. uh, but that's actually what we want right so yeah. we we want it to be semi-buried so that you don't get the atmospheric changes and you're really yeah, you don't measuring want to measure the temperature. the temperature of the air right you want yeah. to measure the ground yeah yeah okay. but but if you think about it if you were to land on mars you know and you didn't know what was going on and you were looking at that instrument all you would see is a tether going from the lander and just down in the ground that's it <laughs> It just and no idea what's going on, and you'd see it like being pulled down every so often, um, or you know once we've buried in after a few months, it wouldn't be moving. Um, so yeah, it's a strange concept to think about, but that's what cool. it would like. Okay, um, great. So uh, we we kind of glossed over the 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 getting there to Mars part. Is it? It's just a basic. Um, it's a pretty standard kind of aeroshell to get in. Like we're just using kind of a blunt body. Yeah, um, similar um, yeah, to, so to Curiosity, doing, right? It's similar to Curiosity, except it's different, <laughs> of course. So it's actually the exact same uh, entry, descent, and landing, or EDL sequence as Phoenix. Right. Um, so, and there's different ways of doing EDL. I don't know if you remember with the MER, the Miles Exploration Rovers, they had those bags. Yeah. Um, we're not using that. Um, with MSL, they had the Mars Science Laboratory, and, and Mars 2020 would use the same thing. It had that crane. It had a sky crane. So it had the parachute, and then once the parachute was let go of, it had a sky crane that had retro rockets and then slowly dropped um, Curiosity down to the ground. We don't need that because we're not as heavy as Curiosity. Uh, we're somewhere in between the MER rovers and, and Curiosity. So what we use is we still use the parachute, but then once the parachute is done, we have little retro rockets on the lander. Um, so they fire up and then we land on the surface. So it's a lot easier in terms of the EDL sequence is a lot less stressful um, than what we uh, what what Curiosity was doing. And it's a lot more similar to, you know, if, you, if you've been following the um, the way that SpaceX is using retro rockets to land on when they land back on Earth, right? Different velocities, different environments, but the concept is the same as the rockets are directly on the lander. Yeah. I'm um, thinking so it's, it's very similar to um, the European uh, Schiaparelli, right? Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, it'll, it, it, we're going to assume it's going to land yeah. properly, but same <laughs> idea, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's the more common, uh, common way of doing it. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, great. Um, so, uh, what's the, what's the spacecraft status right now? You said, is it still at Lockheed right now? Yeah. So, um, so we have, uh, so it's now the end of January. So we're, we're 
preparing for operations, we are having a series of reviews for flight readiness. Uh, we have a, uh, uh, the last few reviews will be this week and next week, and then we'll be shipping uh, from Lockheed to uh, Vandenberg. And if I recall, I think we're, I think we're taking it on a truck. It's always a, it's either on a truck or a plane, but I think this one's on a truck. And so they'll drive across, um, they'll either drive or fly across to Vandenberg. Um, and it's all sort of encapsulated in this, in this environmentally controlled environment. And then once we get to Vandenberg, there'll be a few more tests, um, and then it'll get mounted on the rocket. Uh, and I think it gets mounted, it gets mounted while the rocket is, I think horizontal and then we take it vertical, but I'm, I don't go, I'm not sure about that one. Um, so, so there's a series of things that has to happen. There'll be a series of tests and then we mount it on the rocket. The rocket gets put vertical. We do an extra few tests and then it gets put on the pad sometime in late April, um, ready to, because the launch window opens in May. It opens on, on the 5th of May and lasts for about 30 days. So if, if we miss our window, um, we, we have to wait another two years because the planets only align every two years. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's, so we'll that's be ready the, ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, that's the tough thing with Mars launch windows is you don't want to miss it. <laughs> nope. Awesome. Okay, so spacecraft is coming along well then. That's really great to hear. More from Farah when we return. All of these Mars interviews got you craving more? Check out our new Red Planet Review. It's a weekly show covering all of the headlines of Mars from new science papers to spacecraft. It's available exclusively to Lander-level patrons contributing at least $3 a month or more over on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash wemarsians to start getting your weekly Mars headlines on your private RSS feed today. Because Mars doesn't wait for the next podcast. The other big topic that I want to talk to you about is um, kind of the companion mission to InSight, which is this companion mission, maybe complementary mission but it's these these marco uh concepts so these are little is it mars cubesat one is that what it stands for I think? yes yeah yeah so this is sort of a uh, a technology demonstration that's going along with it so can you sort of explain high level what what marco is and 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 what these cubesats are okay yeah so marco is a, a pair of cubesats and i'll define what a cubesat is a cubesat is really a small spacecraft uh in this case it's a um so cubesats have a given form factor so this one is a 10 a 6u so one U spacecraft would be a 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters uh, cube. So six U, you, you stack them essentially. So this is a 10 by 20 by 30 centimeter cubesat. So so kind of a large Costco-sized cereal box um, is the way I describe it, right? Okay. Um, definitely carryable in a carry-on suitcase, um, <laughs> which is crazy when you think about it. <laughs> I don't want to ask how you know that, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, we have vast, you know, models that we bring for talks. No, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, no, it, it's really is. We, we carry models for talks, and so the little suitcase that bring, comes in is, is carry-on size. Um, but so the history behind Marco, it actually started that pretty much the week that I started at JPL, I saw that project through um, from initial conception through to the initial delivery two years ago. Um, and uh, so the idea was that when we're doing the entry, descent, and landing sequence that I just talked about, um, right now the way it's happening is that all the uh, – inside is landing. is As it's landing, it's got this error shell, um, and it, it, it and then it has a back shell during cruise that it gets rid of. And once it gets a, rid of the – the back shell, it loses its X, its X band antenna, which is the antenna that it uses during cruise to talk to Earth. Um, 
And the lander itself has an expanding antenna, but that one isn't exposed until the, the landing sequence is finished. So in between the losing of the back shelf and the landing, which is really only 10 minutes, it only has a UHF antenna. Um, and that UHF antenna talks to one of the orbiters, MRO, which is the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which will be above. Um, but because of the geometry, as inside is landing, MRO is getting this data, but then it'll pass over the horizon of Mars. And MRO isn't able to transfer all the data in real time uh, back to Earth. So what would happen is it would store all that data and then we wouldn't get it on Earth for something like two to four hours. Um, so not a big deal, but when you're an engineer who's been working on this for, for years, and you know that you know, EDL is kind of a stressful time, we are landing on another planet, um, you, you kind of want your data really fast. So, uh, so the, um, the JPL director at the time asked the lab, what can we do? How, how can we solve this issue? And so that's how these CubeSats came along. And so the idea is that their little, their sole purpose is to do telecommunication relay. Um, so they're going to call on, we have two, but we only actually need one for success. We're just flying two for redundancy. Um, so these little Marco CubeSats are going to co-launch with InSight. They're actually strapped on the second, uh, the second stage of the rocket. So they're not even in, in the shell with InSight. They, they're just attached to the rocket. Um, so InSight will deploy and then the Marco CubeSats will deploy somewhere around the Earth vicinity. They make their own way to Mars. And once they get to Mars, uh, what they're going to do is, as inside is landing, um, the, the Marco spacecraft are going to fly just between where the where inside the inside landing path and MRO, uh, and it's going to sneak in and listen to that signal. So as far as MRO and inside is concerned, they don't even know, right, to quote unquote, that Marco is there. But it's going to receive that UHF signal, transform it in its radio into an X-band signal, and UHF and X-band, by the way, are just different types of frequencies, right? the same as AM and FM radio. Um, so X-band is a little bit shorter um, wavelength, so it has more power. Um, and it's going to take that UHF, turn it into X-band and transmit it straight back to Earth so that we get our data faster. Um, in this case, it's just great to have it early, but it's a great tech demo because we've never done CubeSats. We know we've done CubeSats around Earth, but we've never done deep space CubeSats, let alone ones that have to navigate all the way to Mars and if we can prove this time that, you know, we can do this telecommunication relay, for Mars, it's great because we have other assets. But for different planetary bodies, if we were to do that again, then we could just build another one and bring it along as a free, you know, telecommunication relay when we're doing something a little bit more complex. So, um, I mean, you, you described yourself, I, I was reading your, I think it was your LinkedIn profile, you described yourself as, as sort of, um, you know, uh, an enthusiast for small sats and CubeSats. So do you think that, that uh, this will be successful and that, that CubeSats will, will play a bigger role kind of in all planetary? Like, are you foreseeing that's its main role or is there different roles or... I think we've seen CubeSats emerge a lot recently, right, in the aerospace industry. I started working on CubeSats when I was in graduate school, and it was a really great introduction for me to to understand, you know, you never used to get that chance to build a spacecraft from scratch at, you know, 20, 21, uh, even younger now for, I've even heard of high school students building oh, spacecraft, yeah. right? So I... I actually really see space, you know, CubeSats as an educational tool, and I think that will always stay. Um, we've seen them, you know, places like Planet Labs use them for um, for commercial, uh, and the idea there is that they really are this throwaway 
off-the-shelf, fast build, right? So I've talked to people at Planet Labs that are like, yeah, if one or two spacecraft aren't working, it's not a big deal mm-hmm. uh, because they really, you know, and and I'm working on another mission concept right now where we're using them as part of a an interferometer where you need multiple spacecraft to form a digital antenna. Um, so each each spacecraft is a point in this antenna, and then you can uh, you can reconstruct the signal on the ground based on these different points. And so again, in that case, you need a lot of spacecraft, but they're not doing very much. Um, so for planetary, it's a good question. So I don't think we will ever replace the big missions, right? So the rovers and the landers and and the orbiters are are really the bread and butter of what we do, and and that's how we make scientific discoveries. Especially, I feel like sometimes I joke that. People 10, 20 years ago had it so much easier, right? Cassini got to, to Saturn and it saw the plumes of Enceladus and made a discovery that's going to affect a generation. And now I'm like, well, okay, so you've seen the easy stuff. Now we have to get yeah. to figure out well, what are the plumes made of? Is there life? Um, so our generation is going to have a harder time um, because of all the great work that's been done in the past. But but So you will always need these big missions. But I think... Um, these little CubeSats or, or smaller um, spacecraft who maybe you know don't have the full redundancy, you could easily I could easily see them as enhancement opportunities for different targets, right? And and I think that's what we're looking at them for is is there's always going to be a big mission, but you know can we get a little bit more by doing this or that? Um, and I saw you know on lab it's often younger people that work on those spacecraft as an introduction mm-hmm. to aerospace, and, and it's a great way to get that experience. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that one of the biggest things is, you know, rockets kind of come in, in a few different shapes and sizes. And if your spacecraft doesn't fill all the payload capacity, this exactly. is a great way to kind of fill it up. And then you can have that sort of higher risk, lower cost instrument idea that maybe doesn't have the technological maturity to make it into a major proposal, but is a great kind of way to just try something out. And it's yeah, not a big deal, right? Absolutely. Or the proposal I'm working on is, is you know, we... we we're, it's a stepping stone interferometer that's a little bit easier. We're doing great science. Um, or even, I don't know if you've heard of the EM-1 mission, which will be the first launch of, of the um, SLS, which is the new rocket that NASA is working on. Um, and you know, it's a high-risk launch um, because we're going to the Earth-Moon system for the first time in a while. Um, but as the payload, it's carrying something like 20 or 30 CubeSats. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are doing cool science or doing cool new demonstration missions and and each of them aren't really costing that much and 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 accepting the risk that they're launching on a new rocket but if it works out you know it's it's a high payoff right so yeah. you, you might be able to to get really cool lunar science some people are looking at dust or different things there's like a solar sail on there i think too. there is there's yeah some pretty yeah there's yeah. some cool stuff uh, um the the important thing about CubeSats, as I understand it, is that they're kind of off the shelf, right? Like you can Mm -hmm. just kind of buy, here's my cube, here's like a pre-made power system, a pre-made, you know, reaction wheel. Um, Now for for Marco, is that still pretty true? Like how close to off the shelf is it? Because I know that sometimes, you know, a a big NASA mission, even a discovery, which is like their small ones, that's still going to be something that requires some customization. Yeah, in our case, surprisingly, a lot was off the shelf because we didn't have a choice. And and so because at the time, you know, we we had to deliver. Um, so the InSight mission actually ended up getting delayed by by two years. But originally, uh, we were meant to launch in 2016, which was the, pa- the last time that the planets aligned. And the idea came along in mid 2014. So we really only had 
uh, 18 months or something to, to, to go from idea to, to delivery and you can't build anything new when that happens. So the whole concept was, the whole concept was enabled by the fact that we had these off the shelf parts that were available. Um, so we, we got our ADCS from Blue Canyon in Denver, uh, in, yeah, in Denver, the solar arrays were from MMA, which is also in, in the Boulder area. Um, the CNDH we had already used on another mission at JPL. Same with it, uh, with the, the CNDH is the computer, essentially, it's the command and data handling. Um, the EPS, which is the electrical power system, was also similar to a previous mission. Uh, the radio was already being built at JPL for another mission, so we brought that in. Uh, the, the, the prop system was being built at BACO, which is another uh, provider. And really, what we, had, what we had to work on was figuring out the interfaces between these different off-the-shelf things to make them work together. And one of the biggest parts, and in fact ended up being done by Blue Canyon Technologies, we subcontracted them to do it, uh, the biggest part that we didn't know how to do before was to do interplanetary travel with CubeSats. Normally you have the Earth, you're in orbit around the Earth, control is a lot easier, you have a magnetosphere so you can align yourself using uh, magnetalkers. In this case, we had to desaturate our reaction wheels using a prop system. We had to do trajectory correction maneuvers so that we could target towards Mars, right? We well, had to that's make, what I was thinking. Yeah. You said it detaches like at, at Earth vicinity. Yeah, so, so it's you have to have its way to Mars, but you kind of have to correct it. So it's already yeah. got all the acceleration it needs to make it to Mars, but if we didn't do anything, it would miss it. So we have right, to target right. it the right place. So yeah, so the interaction between the control system and the prop system is something that Blue Canyon actually built. Um, and it's now part of that off-the-shelf, you know, it's not part of what they offer as a product. Um, so, so in terms of that, Marco was a little bit enabling. They had to, they had to go do that work. Because now to. it's off-the-shelf. <laughs> yeah, and I think every CubeSat is a little bit like that, right? It's 90% it's off-the-shelf, and then there's one or two miracles you need to make happen to make it work out. Yeah. It kind of makes it inspiring and kind of harkens back to so, some of the, the roots of the whole engineering field of just trying stuff out to try and solve a problem, right? And it, yeah. it, it makes, because space tra travel historically is so expensive that you don't really have a lot of luxury to, to just mess around with something, right? So this is kind of brings it a little closer to that domain. Yeah, I was really lucky to have that, that opportunity, right? To say, okay, well, you know, we're taking a, taking a higher risk, this is not how we typically do space, and, and I'm definitely seeing the typical way of doing space because we definitely want to succeed on Insight. Uh, but you know, let's try and put something together and, and see if it works. And and that's one thing that's really cool with this CubeSat, um, you know, mentality is that I think it's complementary in a way to what we're already doing, um, and I think we're going to see great things coming out of that. So as we're wrapping up here, I just have a, a couple more questions for you. Um, you know, first of all, are you going to be at the launch? That's uh, it's in your neck of the woods, right? Yeah, I booked my hotel. So, um, yeah, awesome. I actually don't uh, because I'm working on the landed element. I don't have to work the launch. So I will be somewhere around the Vandenberg area watching it. Hopefully <laughs> um, I hear that there's a lot of um, fog. So uh, if anyone knows of spots to watch it from, <laughs> I hear you can go up in the mountains and see it from there. Um, actually, on a clear day, you can see those launches from L.A., uh, which is where I live. But yes, I will definitely be there. Cool. OK, well, maybe we'll run into each other because I'm planning on coming down, too. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, lastly, so if a listener wants to learn more about you or about Insight, um, anywhere they should go in particular on the Internet if they want to read up? 
Uh, yeah, so we just launched our new uh, website. It's mars.nasa.gov forward slash insight. Um, so that should have all the information about the insight mission. And then uh, you can follow at NASA JPL on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, the accounts will be back up soon. And uh, you can follow me at itrifaratops. You can see the, uh, the dinosaur. <laughs> uh, so it's T-R-I-F-A-R-A-H-T-O-P-S. Um, and I usually check my, um, my messages on that too. So if you have any questions, just message me on Instagram. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. I know it's very millennial of me, but I'm a millennial, so I'm going to embrace it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay. That's great. Uh, Farah, thanks so much. This has been an awesome conversation. And uh, I'm, I'm even more excited about this mission now than I was an hour ago. So uh, thanks cool. for sharing all the engineering stuff with me. Yeah, no problem. And I'll see you at the launch. That's all, Martians. I hope you enjoyed the discussion about NASA's InSight Lander. Remember, the launch date is May 5th from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. It's a very early launch, something like 4 a.m. Pacific. So while it probably won't intrude on your work or school day, you may also need to wake up pretty early to watch it. But don't worry, we'll have plenty of more coverage on this before long. If you like today's show, consider leaving a rating or review in iTunes. Uh, I want to say thank you to Hoda here in Canada for the nice five-star rating and very kind review left this month. We're on social media as well. You can follow us on Twitter at we underscore Martians and also on Facebook and Instagram at we Martians. And if you haven't noticed, over on wemartians.com, I've been blogging a little bit. It's something I've wanted to do more of this year. So if you scroll to the bottom of the page below the episodes, or just use the blog link in the menu bar, you'll be able to see a list of all the, the different blogs I've posted lately. There's some random thoughts there about the Curiosity Rover and the Opportunity Rover, their, their update for the year. Uh, some, some bits about uh, the recent Humanity Star launched by Rocket Lab and what it means for Mars and the overall space discussion. So there's something there for everyone, and I think you'll like it. But that's it. Next we talk will be from Cape Canaveral, Florida, and I couldn't be more excited. At Aries, Martians. Thank you.